The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. This year, we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attack unspeakable event that took the lives of 2,996 people that day with two planes being flown into the twin tower of the World Trade Center in New York City, a third hitting the Pentagon just outside Washington, D.C., and a fourth plane crashing in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Adding to this, thousands of first responders and people working and living in lower Manhattan near Ground Zero were exposed to toxic fumes and particles emanating from the towers as they burned. By 2018, 10,000 people were diagnosed with 9-11-related cancer. Almost 4,000 have died from related illness. On December 18, 2001, Congress approved naming September 11th Patriot Day, to commemorate the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. In 2009, Congress named September 11 a National Day of Service and Remembrance. Behind all the numbers are real people and families who have journeyed for 20 years with grief, remembrance, and extraordinary resilience. We are so honored today that our guest is someone who has touched many of their lives for 20 years through her unending efforts and vision. Our guest is Mary Fetchett, the founding director of Voices Center for Resilience, formerly known as the Voices of September 11th, an organization she founded following the death of her 24-year-old son, Brad, on 9-11. Mary Fetchett's unique background as the mother of the victim, along with 27 years of experience as a clinical social worker, influenced Voice's innovative approach to providing long-term support services for those impacted by 9-11 and even other tragedies worldwide as the years went by. For her tireless work, Mary Fetchett has received several awards, including the induction into the Hall of Fame at Columbia University School of Social Work, ABC News Person of the Year, and NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams, Making a Difference. Mary Fetchett makes a difference to others every day. Mary Fetchett, it has been my privilege to know you and to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, hi, Suzanne. Thanks so much uh, for having me, and, um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share our story. Okay. So, I'm, as I mentioned to you, Mary, I've just been wondering, people often talk about a post-traumatic identity. I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to invite our listeners who've taken this journey with you, do you feel you're different than you were 20 years ago? Well, I think I'm, I feel like I'm the same, but certainly my life changed profoundly, uh, you know, after the murder of our, our son on September 11th. Um, I was a clinical social worker at the time. I worked in an outpatient mental health clinic, 
and oddly enough, um, I had an interest in um, how they responded to tragedies, and that was really as a result of hearing a woman speak that lost her daughter in the Oklahoma City bombing. I started doing a literature review when you had to actually uh, drive to an academic institution uh, to mm-hmm. do research, um, and I was in line at the clinic to be part of the response team. I never went back to work there, but I, um, uh, you know, I... Uh, some of the people that I worked with um, formerly responded to the Newtown shooting as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the way that my life has changed is really the things that I'm doing beyond social work. I became, um, you know, a victim's advocate in many ways as I started going into New York City and meeting with other families and meeting with elected officials. Um, We became, you know... Several things were very important to me personally. The notification of remains, we worked with Dr. Hirsch, the medical examiner, to streamline that process so families could decide if, how, and when they wanted to be notified. Uh, We wanted to make sure that the memorial, an appropriate memorial, was built at the World Trade Center site. So with other family members, I became involved in in, uh, an advisory committee. Um, And then I went to Washington uh, with other family members to advocate for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. And certainly politics and legislation um, was well beyond anything that I ever imagined uh, doing. But, you know, like the other family members I was with, uh, we actually became experts in intelligence reform, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. <laughs> so, um, but what we're doing as far as the organization is certainly uh, providing the long-term support that the victims' families and now the responders and survivors need. You know, it was what I was focused on pre- pre-9-11, um, and we were working on that simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So when you think back to the very start of your journey and the beginning of Voices of September 11th, what do you see as the major and important accomplishments that have so supported not only the 9-11 community, but everyone involved with them and everyone attached to them? And I know from being at some of your events that you've touched people at the Boston Marathon and Columbine and Sandy and on and on. But let's go back to your beginning with Voices of 9-11. What are some of the important policy um, programs and programs in general that you set in motion? Well, typically after these tragedies, the federal government uh, provides financial support to organizations uh, for about 12 to 18 months. And what we found, um, well, I guess several things. One is federal agencies, um, you know, are focused in a specific silo. And we looked at it more holistically. We looked at, you know, how the notification of remains um, uh, is going to impact families, how them having a voice is going to impact um, families, because when when you lose somebody in a, a tragedy like 9-11, you've lost every sense of control. So being part of those decision-making processes were very important. 
um, I think that um, advocating, you know, we wanted to, we deserved an answer to what were the failures on 9-11 because, you know, as a mother, I certainly don't want another mother to suffer, you know, the loss that we suffered that day. Mm-hmm. And so it was really through that investigation uh, that they were able to, to pinpoint what the failures were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our work, uh, along with um, supporting, the you know, the certainly the efforts of the 9-11 Commission, uh, led to sweeping intelligence reforms that uh, had never happened um, on that scale and probably will never happen again, wow. you know, based on the the lack of um, support uh, related to the investigation into the attack on the Capitol building. But the thing that I, I think really struck me is that people grieve in their own time and in their own way, and they may not come forward in the first month or the first 12 months or the first 18 months and so they have these evolving needs, and they need continuity of care. They need to be able to call a place that knows what they went through on the first day and what they've gone through in the 20th year. Mm-hmm. And so really that's the, the organization that we established. Um, so when people call, we know who they lost, where they worked. Um, you know, we've kept in touch with uh, our partners uh, that are still providing services uh, and some kind of service um, over the last 20 years. And, um, you know, and we're able to think uh, creatively and develop programs that are based on their needs, not based on a, pol- a policy that may be in place that is, you know, taking a stab in a sense at what victims need. Mm. You've been up close and personal to it from the very beginning. So let me ask for someone out there, and and we know that some people wait 20 years. They cannot do it before. If someone out there hears this show and says, I should have called and I want to now belong, exactly what would that person do, Mary? They would just call our office, um, 203-966-3911, or they can visit our website, voicescenter.org, and send us an email. Uh, and we are seeing that consistently. Every year we think, gee, you know, may, um, you know, everyone has what they need, but they also and they are continuing to uh, be involved in our programs. But every year we're shocked at the number of people that contact us for the first time. And we had a recent... Um, series of writing workshops, and one of the women uh, said that she had never talked to another survivor in 20 years. Wow. She survived that tax and had never been in touch with another survivor. So it's that peer-to-peer support, making those connections, but also recognizing what the need is and providing the programs based on that need. Mm-hmm. So let me go down the list, and let's Let's get a sense of what the pro- programs that are still in place, and then I want to ask you about the change in the name from um, Voices of September 11th. Or oh, maybe I'll start with that. Mary, what what prompted you to change the name at this point or recently from Voices of 9-11 to Voices of Remembrance? 
Well, we've changed the Voices Center for Resilience, and the reason we changed the name in 2007, um, you know, I was mentioning that there was really no understanding of long-term needs of victims by the federal agencies, and there was really no way, uh, no, uh, you know, financial support uh, to any entity to provide long-term services. Um, but we, what we also saw was that they, um, um, the same mistakes were being made. And I remember specifically in 2007 when the Virginia Tech shooting happened, uh, we saw the same mistakes being made in the notification process, in the community being unprepared, um, and so on and so forth. And so it was at that point that we... Um, you know, we advocated for a grant to to do research into these tragedies. So we went to Oklahoma City, we went to Virginia Tech, we went to Northern Illinois University, we went to Tucson, Arizona, where they responded to the Gabby Giffords shooting. And mm-hmm. then we collected after-action reports, you know, all the after-action reports from 9-11 from all the different agencies and organizations that wow. provided some kind of service. So it was really in 2007 then that we were focused on developing best practices that we were then contacted, you know, by the federal government or individuals that were in the communities uh, that had been impacted, you know, asking for our assistance and guidance. So so we're, we're continuing to do that work, uh, but we're also working internationally. We're part of an international network uh, that meets, uh, you know, via phone or conference call um, once a month, and we're sharing best practices internationally because we often see that, like 9-11, there were 90 countries that lost citizens that day. So mm-hmm. oftentimes these tragedies go well beyond the local community. Um, they could be national tragedies or international tragedies, and it's through those partnerships that we're able to connect them with the proper resources. Oh, it's so impressive, the reach and the the amount that you've done. So at at this time, what are some of the issues that you feel really continue to need a push, support, and recognition of? I know one thing you mentioned when we spoke was the notification of human remains. What What is the situation with that for some of these families who I know are continuing to wait? Well, there's several uh, outstanding issues. I think, one, uh, there's never been resolution in the trial. So, um, you know, the, the sus- suspected terrorists have not been tried, uh, and they're still in Guantanamo, and that trial has dragged on, you know, indefinitely. Um, we also, as you said, uh, the medical examiner who we're, we're working with still very closely, uh, they still have 7,000 um, body parts in their possession, and, what, and they're, they're using the most advanced scientific um, uh, you know, available uh, DNA um, 
you know, ways that they can match the DNA, but there's they still have 7,000 that they have not been able to identify. Mary, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to apologize because we're going to have to take a break, but we can come right back in terms of this very important topic. Um, You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're so fortunate to have with us Mary Fetchett, the founding director of Voices for the Voices Center for Resilience. It was formerly known as the Voices of September 11th, an organization she co-founded following the death of her 24-year-old son, Brad, on 9-11. Continue to listen. She's going to update on us on programs that exist now, programs you can take advantage of, and what has been set in place over these 20 years. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Mary Fetchett, the founding director of Voices Center for Resilience. We're talking about her initiation of this organization, which she co-founded following the death of her 24-year-old son, Brad, on 9-11. We were just speaking about families waiting for remains, and Mary was saying there are 7,000 remains still um, that are being scrutinized by the most sophisticated um I guess, technology. So she wants you to know that that remains in process. Moving from that, Mary, I know one of the things that has sometimes been in the paper, but I certainly know from you that over the years, many other people have suffered, suffered, become sick and died. Let's talk a little bit about the responders and the survivors over these 20 years. Uh, yes, and I think that's a really important issue. Um, there were uh, over 400,000 people that survived that day. They lived, worked, or went to school in the area. And then there were over 90,000 people that responded. Uh, they were all exposed in the on that day and in the days and weeks following um, to toxic uh, air. And uh, as a result, uh, many of them, there's over 83,000 
that have are suffering from life-threatening illnesses. There's over a hundred cancers, some very rare, a lot of respiratory uh, conditions, uh, and then of course mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, and PTSD are in the top ten uh, diagnosed conditions. So there's currently eighty-three thousand. Of the almost 500,000, 83,000 are receiving um, treatment for those conditions, and over 4,300 have died um, because of their 9-11-related illnesses. So that number is just going to continue to go up. And mm. you know, as I mentioned earlier, after a tragedy, resources are available in the immediate aftermath. Now we have this large number of families that are bereaved families, um, and there are no resources for those individuals. So the, that uh, area of bereavement is uh, something that's growing um, in the care that we're giving uh, for the responder and survivor families. So is um, your organization able to, in some way, uh, work to get them resources? Or are you affiliated with the World Trade Center Medical Care? Well, the World Trade Center Medical um, Care, uh, we actually help the responders and survivors apply to that and then connect them with the attorneys that can help them once they have a certified condition um, receive compensation for whatever their condition is. But what falls outside the purview of, of the CDC are the families that have lost somebody due to those conditions. So they are not covered under the World Trade Center Health Program. I and that's see. the growing population of bereaved families. Uh, one of the projects that we worked on with the 9-11 families uh, on the, we started on the fifth year is to document the lives that were lost. And, of course, you know, there were no uh, standards for digital archiving back then. Um, so we went from community to community, meeting with families, and collected over 87,000 photographs of, um, from the families of those that died on 9-11. And we're going to be launching the same program for the responder and survivor families who have mm-hmm. lost somebody since because we feel that um, they really, their lives too, um, and, and the loss that they suffered too, is directly associated with the attacks on September 11th. So we're really looking forward to working with those families to commemorate those lives. And the project's remarkable when you see it for those who already have archived their their loved ones and the stories about them. In terms of the responders and survivors, again, are you also able to direct them to mental health services, Mary? Uh, They do have some uh, mental health treatment through the World Trade Center Health Program. Uh, But what we do do is, you know, our annual symposium that we have on September 9th and 10th, we started that on the first anniversary. We're we're having it on the 20th anniversary, and Suzanne's a big part of uh, the program, her and her colleagues at uh, AGPA who uh, helped lead some of the support groups. Uh, But at that conference, um, we have... You know, all of the medical doctors, we have the 
people that are uh, the attorneys that are working in the compensation fund and the special master, and that it's a real important time to connect uh, with one another. And it's that peer-to-peer support that we've found is so beneficial uh, to individuals impacted by tragedies. And I guess it's worth us letting people know we have had people join after 19 years and be welcomed by any group, um, whether they're in the audience listening to a medical professional or a mental health professional or whether they're in a listening group, they are welcomed as part of this community. Mary, I don't know if I specifically asked you what prompted you to change the name to the Voices of Resilience, the Center for the Voices of Resilience. Uh, We changed the name because we're being called upon by other communities. And so we will always be, you know, zero focused on providing support to the 9-11 community. Um, And, you know, we provide individual consultation. I think we've had 2,200 support groups over the years. Uh, We've done over 60 workshops, you know, during COVID. Those are continuing, and we have the symposium uh, every year. But I think that um, beyond that, we also have done research. We've developed tip sheets um, that have been actually distributed worldwide, and it's through that growing need to really help those communities that we felt that this would better um, represent the broader mission of our work, which is to assist communities in preparing for and responding to other tragedies. Okay, so I understand. So it really does give you a broader umbrella to have them included because it's not then so specifically 9-11. Sure, and some of these tragedies, you know, whether it's a um, school shooting or a terrorist attack or actually natural disasters, sometimes the loss of life um, might be small enough that it doesn't warrant having, uh, you know, a standalone organization that's providing support. So we feel it's really through uh, those peer-to-peer groups and, and being able to to help guide people, whether it's an individual or an organization, on, you know, what is that process that they're going to be going through, you know, how can they, you know, intervene at an earlier point so so they don't end up with a, a mental health condition, and then how can we support them and inform them about what they have to think about in the months and years ahead. Your passing forward of lessons learned has been almost unbelievable, and it's made such a difference and touched so many people. Underscoring that, I kept wondering and worrying, how did the 9-11 community and all those who have joined for other reasons because of other tragedies or events, how did, have they fared with the pandemic? What, what impact did it have? Uh, we actually do an annual needs assessment, and what came through in that um, data was, and, and through our um, focus groups and support groups that we had, um, you know, over the months uh, since COVID, uh, we've found that it really, um, like some, like anyone, it, it, you sort of 
stood back and reassessed, you know, how are you doing? Uh, I do think that people fell into three categories. Some felt that, gee, you know, I've gotten through the worst on 9-11 and I've been able to move forward. Others um, were impacted by the isolation, the unpredictability. If they lived in New York, they were, you know, exposed to uh, the sirens, uh, the makeshift morgues, the, you know, the people, um, you know, um, hitting their pants, you know, and sounds are very traumatic for somebody that has PTSD. Uh, But there was a second group that thought, well, gee, I have made progress, but I need a little more. I I need to be working on my resilience. Um, And then there was a third category of people that it just was overwhelming. I mean, they may have lost another loved one. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the unpredictability, not just of COVID, but the social unrest, the attack on the Capitol building, you know, even uh, more recently, the collapse of the the building and Surfside, that really re-triggered things for people in the 9-11 community because, again, it was a collapse of a building, there was a rescue and recovery effort. People were waiting for long, long periods of time to learn about, you know, if their loved one was um, found in the, mm-hmm. in the um, pile there. Um, and then so funeral services were delayed and all the things that we went through uh, over the course of months and years uh, in the 9-11 community. So you do have these tragedies that uh, re-trigger things, and I, I do think that the unpredictability and the isolation uh, that we all felt uh, during COVID, you know, does have people sort of taking a step back and reassessing where, where, how they're doing, and and what they need to do to to build more resilience in their lives. So many of our workshops have really been focused on that since COVID. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that came to mind a lot with how with people sharing with me part of their tragic stories about losing people during COVID was the inability to be with a loved one at the time of the death. And we know that burial rites and last moments become a part of this certainty regardless of the religion or the culture they mean something to us. So when that is not available, as it was a problem for many who had parents in nursing homes where they weren't able to get to the parents, and when you add that to the similar picture of 9-11 and the inability to um, rescue and actually have the type of burial that people, all of us have come to predict, and then again with Miami, it's a very difficult time. I think what you're saying is really valid in that people are re-triggered, but what we hope is when they have a supportive organization or a group or a community, they are re-triggered, but they also find out, I survived that, and it's amazing, but I just survived this. It's painful, but I love, I sort of love the fact that you 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 now have expanded the name to the center the Vo- of resilience because the voices center for resilience because i think that's very inherent in the journey of 20 years every painful step has also brought with it opportunities for people to realize 
it's amazing that they have done what they've done. They've raised children. They have survived all kinds of illness. They have dealt with people in their lives who were not so empathic. So it's with every re-traumatization, there's often the opportunity to register resilience, especially if you have a community. And that could be three people. But your organization offers a community to people. Well, I think you're right, Suzanne, uh, the sense of community and the peer-to-peer support, because over time, what we see, you know, with the people that, and we've worked with thousands of people over the last 20 years, uh, you know, in one program or, or another, um, but the thing that we've found is that um, even their family members may not understand why they haven't gotten over it. And, um, and, and so meeting with another person that, that understands what they've gone through, understands the challenges they face, you know, will listen to their story. Um, you know, that just validates, um, you know, their experience and, and it's very, very supportive way to, to help them move forward. Um, mm. So that's what the sense of community, I think, is critical. And, and having the support that you need, uh, and that's the, the reason why I think it's so important that every community is prepared for some kind of tragedy because you see time and time, you know, on the news, people saying, you know, I never thought something like this could happen in our community. Well, right. it can and it does. And so the more prepared a community is to respond, the better quality of support those people are going to have at the onset uh, rather than making, you know, really irreparable damage that they do to people when they're not responding properly. That's so well said. You know, having some other group like your group you know, sharing the lessons learned and helping them set up a structure of response and support is invaluable in terms of later both physical and mental health problems. One of the things, Mary, that I wondered about as a positive has been over 20 years, we've really advanced in terms of availability of online um, connection and uh, people's um the fact that people, everyone has a cell phone, or many people do, so they really have a way to be part of a community. I mean, in a recent program you did, there were people on the, that call from all over the country. They didn't have to come to New York to feel like they were with someone, and if I could share it, some of them were startled and so moved that people on the call had parents who had been working on the same floor of that building in the same company that day. That kind of substantive validation is remarkably helpful in healing, and I don't know if it could have happened if your program wasn't going, you didn't offer the program, and if we didn't have the online potential. Well, I can't agree with you more. Um, you know, we had to think creatively after 9-11 because, as you say, we had people living around the country, but in 93 countries. And so I came up with the um, concept of holding teleconference support groups. And like I said, mm-hmm. we've had over 2,200 support groups over the years. 
So we connected people by phone, and I can say right before the pandemic, I was at a conference where they, they had someone talking about virtual treatment, and there were so few people in there to hear that lecture that it was shocking. Then COVID hit, and the world changed. Yes. It was really, um, I think, um, and that, then, of course, you know, all the clinicians need to know how to work virtually. So do the right. schools and everyone else. Um, but Mary, what I ha- found, um, it was wait, wait, wait. extremely Mary, easy. Take a break. We're going to have to take a break, and I want to come right back to this point because I don't want to miss the, the importance of the virtual treatment. But let's just take a break for a moment. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm so fortunate to be here with Mary Fetchett, the founding director of Voices Center for Resilience, formerly known as Voices of September 11th. We're talking about the reach that Voices Center of Resilience has had. It's it's dramatic across across nations, across states. Stay with us. We're going to be talking about virtual treatment on the other side. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here at Mary Fetchett, the founding director of Voices Center for Resilience. Um, this is a group that has had an incredible reach worldwide in the aftermath of disasters. And um, Mary was just talking about how we all just turned on, especially clini- clinicians like myself and Mary, the reality of virtual treatment and what that has meant in terms of allowing people to be with groups across the country or across the world, and to not be alone. Do you want to say more about how you used it um, in in this organization, Mary? Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, many tragedies like Newtown say you can build a community-based center because the tragedy happened within a community. At 9-11, you know, there, there people lost loved ones, 93 countries. So we really had to develop a program, and we used in the early days a teleconference groups to connect mothers with mothers, siblings with siblings, survivors and responders with each other. 
so when COVID hit and we all learned to use Zoom, that, I mean, we were able to turn on our heels immediately because it was such uh, something that I'd been wanting, you know, for at that point 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to immediately start the web-based uh, programs and make them interactive and include people, you know, from around the world. Uh, last year, our symposium, because of COVID, was virtual, and we had individuals from 39 states and nine countries participate in our symposium. Wow. Fabulous. Fabulous. And this year, it, will it be virtual and in person, Mary? Yes, uh, and the symposium uh, is on September 9th and 10th, and we always uh, hold it at the Marriott Downtown Hotel, which is just adjacent to the 9-11 Museum. Uh, But this year, because of the response that we had last year, we've decided to also offer it virtually. So it's free of charge. People just can go online and register for the event. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different topics that we'll be covering from, you know, the 9-11 Commission to the museum, you know, to the changes in journalism and mental health and so on and so forth. So there's probably... You know, a panel presentation that may be of interest to many of your viewers. And we can't underscore enough that 20 years in terms of a tragedy this large, and in terms of anyone's personal tragedy, is like yesterday. I was doing a group, a 9-11 group this week, and it, they said, how could it be 20 years? It doesn't feel like 20 years. And I think that is a feeling that people have. And that's why the availability of the symposium, even for people who are not in New York, becomes such an important one. There are people who are talking now, and I'm I'm wondering if you've heard it. They haven't quite been able to go to the museum. They may try this year. That's how enormous and how traumatic this, this event was and how many people it touched and people related to it. With that in mind, I wanted to ask you, is there something in your mind, you're you're so creative in terms of policy and outreach, that you still want to set in motion for both the families as well as survivors and responders, Mary, in the future? Uh, Well, I do think um, that we're seeing right now intergenerational issues, uh, and that's of, of, you know, big concern to me. Uh, We're seeing a lot of um, spouses, you know, who who were never alone. You know, they may have married, lost their husband on 9-11, cared for their children, and they're now at a, a point where the children are, you know, have graduated from college and they're moving to another part of the mm-hmm. country. And so this, these um, women, you know, are now, they've devoted their life to caring for their children after this tragedy, and now they're being, you know, having to take a look at, you know, who are they and, and what do they want to do with the rest of their lives. And, and yet this is a, another form of a loss Mm -hmm. Um, when your child moves on, any life transition that, that, you know, people normally go through, it's just magnified when you have a a tragedy. Uh, I think the thing that is really, um, that has not been addressed, 
uh, and it's more so for, um, you know, other tragedies, is, um, you know, the use of victims' messages and, and pictures, um, you know, and they're used in movies and they're used in documentaries without mm-hmm. any permission from the families. And I know mm-hmm. we experience that ourselves when Zero Dark Thirty um, you know, had the film came out, and we found out from somebody that went to the screening that they had used the message that my son left for me in their movie without even contacting us. And I'm pretty easy to find uh, mm. to ask my permission. So I think it's there's things like that that come up that we can really use our own experience to advocate for changes. Uh, I do think, too, the federal government should be um, supporting organizations that are providing long-term support. And um, and then the other thing is that, you know, much like the Holocaust, I think 9-11 and some of these other tragedies, you know, it, it has a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And, and so that you have to really be able to provide that continuity of care over their lifetime. And certainly we have this growing number of responders and survivors and their families that are going to be suffering the loss of their loved one because of these medical conditions. So, um, you know, it's not over. It's, it's, you know, there are long-term needs and there has to be somebody there and I, I I feel that we have an opportunity and a responsibility uh, for Voices Center for Resilience to to really continue the work and continue to be a resource for people when they need it. I think I couldn't agree more, and I even think it's the case, Mary. And I hope our, our listeners are um, tune into this that sometimes I might not have the strength or even the need to contact you or to um, go down to be part of the memorial ceremony um, this year. But the fact that you're having it is very important to me. So that you you represent remembering, mourning, and the resilience. And, and so I feel like it won't be forgotten because they're there and they're still honoring our losses and they're still there if we need them. So I, I think that over the years, the fact that you have such a vision to protect their personal rights and to take care of the the um, intergenerational piece, I hadn't, you know, I don't know that people realize what you said is so true, which is as families change and children go on, the the logistics change. There can be loneliness. Some people are so happy that the kids are finally out of the house. They're thrilled. But it's not always that ca- that way. So the way that you're looking at family dynamics, which as a social worker, of course, you're doing that, really is important to people. I think your presence at the helm and the varied programs that you have provided have have been remarkably important to people, even if they haven't come yet. Uh, well, and what we're seeing with some of the children, unfortunately, is uh, uh, substance abuse yeah. and uh, suicides um, as a result. So I, I do think that, um, you know, there has to be resources for those families, whether they're mm-hmm. going through the challenge of, of trying to support their child 
or God forbid they're going through, uh, as we've had uh, very recently, um, a suicide um, and, and dealing with having lost somebody on 9-11 and then doing dealing with the suicide of their child. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that, uh, you know, this all seems very grim, but I can tell you that it's such meaningful work, and I can never thank enough, you know, my friends that stepped forward at the very beginning and helped us start the organization, uh, the people that we've met from all walks of life who have donated their time, they've donated their money, they've do- donated their, like Suzanne, their uh, resources, you know, very accomplished clinicians um, like Suzanne that have stepped forward and, and been able to help um, support the programs that we're continuing to provide. Um, you know, there have been dignitaries, uh, you know, presidents and senators and congressmen that helped us uh, on the public policy front. Uh, and there's been quilters and artists, and mm-hmm. and they're sure. still coming forward today. We have a art exhibit. We have thousands of pieces of artwork that we decided to, we can't put thousands on exhibit. Um, now we have another project where we have to really create this digital archive, but we are having our first art exhibit um, from, you know, and this mail art project, we have over 2,300 pieces of mail art, and it was you know, artists from, you know, all ages and, you know, across the country and the world that, um, you know, painted or decorated an envelope and mailed it on September 11th over the course of 10 years. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's those kinds of things that, you know, as, as um, difficult as it is to be commemorating the 20th anniversary. It's also a reunion, you know, among our community that Mm -hmm. has come to know each other over the last 20 years, as well as the people like Suzanne and others that have supported our work in in many ways that we could never um, thank them enough. Hmm. Let me ask you this, Mary, because I'm thinking, I mean, the art and the commemoration is just it's just unbelievable. But as as a parent, if I was if my if I lost my spouse and I did now have a young adult son who had um, substance problems, would I go through you to find a road to the World Trade Center treatment? I'm giving a very specific, literal kind of question. Yeah. Now the World Trade Center treatment is not for family members. The the world. Trade Center um, Health Program is for responders and survivors that were in Lower Manhattan and exposed to the toxic air. Okay, so what would a a, a woman whose son is now older and out of the house would she have any? access to services or be able to tell him about access to services, or is that a program you're still trying to launch? Well, we're not a mental health clinic, but we can certainly um, provide, you know, um, interactive informational workshops and webinars. We can provide support.
support groups and peer-to-peer support. Um, but when you have, you know, a serious mental health condition, they really need to be seen by somebody that can, number one, diagnose them, see them face-to-face, um, you know, uh, monitor their medication if, in fact, they're on medication uh, or uh, refer them out, you know, if they, in fact, need um, inpatient care. So it's nothing to really fool around with if you have a child that has a substance abuse problem. You know, you want to get them into the treatment um, and you want to have those wraparound services so that you're sure that they have, you know, uh, you know, whether it's social service support, but also a psychiatrist that can do, conduct an evaluation and provide uh, medication. And I think there were two things that I was, was very um, much a proponent of. One, uh, went back before 9-11, one is um, continuity of care. If you're Working with somebody, you need you have a responsibility to make sure that they receive care that they need, and, and to refer them to resources um, and be available. The other thing that I was totally against is general practitioners prescribing um, psych meds. Mm-hmm. That went rampant, rampant after 9/11. So I do can't say enough how if you have a serious mental health condition or substance abuse that you really need to be seen by somebody that's local that can provide the services and make sure that, you know, the family then has the support that they need. Mm. Well, well, I know even from being at some of the anniversary events when people have come forward, your staff has taken very seriously the attempt to head them in the right direction of care. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. And so that's, I wanted our listeners to know that that's a kind of conduit for them. You're not providing that care, but I've seen you guys really go out of your way to try to find care for them. So yeah. let me So let me ask, Mary, as we're almost out of time, what is the take-home message that you would like to share with all our listeners on this, the 20th anniversary year of 9-11? Um, I think, you know, just to go back and say uh, just how touching it's been, um, you know, to have all the people step forward and support us and our families in so many ways, um, and that there are long-term needs that, you know, there has to be, you know, they people still need care, and, and we're still here to offer it. So, you know, if they know of somebody that was lost a loved one on 9-11 or somebody that responded uh, or survived or a family of somebody that's died because of 9-11-related illnesses, we're certainly available, uh, you know, to provide them uh, with the support that they need. And I'd say uh, also um, that we are available when people have lost somebody in another tragedy. And, you know, if there's anything that we can do to help guide them, you know, uh, on the right path um, to hope and healing uh, and building a resilience, resilient life, all of our programs are relevant uh, for them as well. Mm-hmm. 
Well, as someone who has herself suffered the loss of your son, you never stopped helping others. I, I don't know that we could count the number of people that you've helped, Mary. So I want to thank you for coming on. It's my honor that you're on today. I want to I want to um, send a special message to our listeners who have been touched by 9-11 to remember that it's a journey of pain, but it's also a journey of connection and resilience. Mary certainly exemplifies that. I want to remind my listeners that you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website. It'll be on the Voices um, Center for Resilience site. It's also on every platform for podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon. You can find it. Remember to drop me a comment or a question. Thank you again, Mary Fetchett, for joining me today. Please remember, until next week, be safe, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening. Be listening.